Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. To mark World Environment Day 2020 on the theme of biodiversity, we have two fascinating guests who've been mapping the tree of life and uncovering the size of the threat that faces some of our rarest species. Their future is in the balance as more than 50 billion years of unique evolutionary history is at risk. To tell us more, I am joined by Dr. James Rosendell, reader in biodiversity theory in the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial College, where he's funded for his postdoctoral research by the Natural Environment Research Council. James has a particular interest in ecological neutral theory and its varied applications and in wider public engagement. He created, and I have to tell you, it's absolutely awesome, OneZoom Tree of Life Explorer, which is a free website www.onezoom.org and it's now run as an independent charity and there you can see all of evolutionary history on one big tree. James welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you it's great to be here. My second guest is the lead author of an influential new paper Global Priorities for Conservation of Reptilian Phylogenetic Diversity in the Face of Human Impacts. If that sounds a mouthful, don't worry, because he's going to explain all about what it means. Ricky Gums is a postgraduate researcher at Imperial, although he's mostly based at ZSL, London Zoo, where his focus is on the integration of evolutionary history, trait diversity and extinction risk to identified conservation priorities. He's going to walk us through his paper and everything that that means, both for the importance for conservation and biodiversity. Ricky, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So the research you've both been doing on species loss is really significant and important, but perhaps to ease us in, James, could I ask you to start by explaining what one Zoom tree of life is? Um, because I think that helps us to get a sense of what the wider mapping work is and the importance of identifying which species are most under threat. So talk us through one Zoom. Yes, thanks. That's exactly the purpose of OneZoom, is to communicate and make clear not only the huge variety of biodiversity there is on Earth, but also how threatened that is with extinction in, in many cases. And also how in many cases we don't even know how threatened with extinction it is. So if I can describe what you'd experience if you were to go and explore OneZoom, you're going to look at something rather like a tree, which represents all life on Earth. The leaves of the tree represent the species, and the branches of the tree represent the evolutionary history that connects those species, which is very relevant to Ricky's paper. And so we'll be talking about that again uh, shortly. But what you will find is that you can explore that like a geographic map. But it's not a map of where things are in space. It's a map of how they're connected evolutionarily to each other. So two leaves connected by two fairly small branches, they are closely related. Whereas two leaves in very distant parts of the tree, that's like going from one continent to the other in spatial terms, much further away and more distant from each other in terms of their evolution. And The way you explore this tree is in very much the same way as you explore a geographic map. You zoom into areas you're particularly interested in and they expand out in front of you, just like you might zoom into a country on a geographic map. You might zoom into mammals and then further details appear. So you then might decide, oh, within mammals that you're interested in bats. So you zoom into bats and so on and so forth. The the whole point is this is about 
helping to educate all of us in understanding how our, our species have evolved and how they're genetically connected, isn't it? Um, and, and where is it being used? Because as I said in the intro, it's been set up now as an independent charity. So, so how is it being used to, to keep people informed and to, to spread that knowledge? So it will be used in several ways. Anyone who has an interest in natural history could go onto the website and explore it because this is essentially all life on Earth. And most people some find some aspects of life on Earth interesting. But beyond that, we also have a system which enables museums and public venues to instantly deploy an exhibition on a touchscreen where people can explore the tree of life. And we also have a section which is a bit less well developed at the moment where we're encouraging educators and teachers to come up with learning materials, worksheets which use one Zoom in schools, and we can then publicise their worksheets if they're willing to share them. It's a great tool, but it's particularly interesting in some of the work that you've been doing, Ricky, isn't it? Because actually, when you go right out to the ends of those branches and you get to the very far you know, the tips of the branches, you get those species that are actually significantly important. Why are they so important? Well, a lot of the species that we're finding in our work, which are driving the patterns we see of, of biodiversity loss globally, they, they don't sit, so James mentioned earlier that about these, you know, closely related species, which sit on small branches of the tree of life close together. Um, if we lose species on short branches at the tips, the loss of biodiversity of this phylogenetic diversity, which I can explain now, is much less than if we lose very distant species on very long branches of the tree with very few relatives. So the idea of of losing phylogenetic diversity, which is a a fundamental measure of biodiversity itself, um, this phylogenetic diversity is the unique evolutionary history spanning a group of species. So if you have species on short branches, you know, in one area of the tree and you are to lose those species, it it will represent a much smaller loss of biodiversity than losing long branches represented by, you know, one or two species that are threatened right across the tree of life. And um, yeah, one zoom is absolutely fantastic for visualizing this. You can you can spin across the tree, you know, very rapidly and just see the sheer scale of threatened species with the colored leaves showing how threatened they are just like yeah it it really can put it into perspective if if that's at all possible you know how unique some of these species are and how isolated they are the tree of life but also how threatened they are and we are losing that biodiversity um richness at a really alarming rate aren't we yeah so just this week um a paper has came out showing that even more evidence that the human-induced sixth mass extinction which we are now experiencing is accelerating so um, in 100 years, in the past 100 years, we've lost around 400 species that we are aware of, of vertebrates. Um, and they estimate that this would have taken 10,000 years without human influence. So within 100 years, we are seeing the extinction rate, you know, really, really start to ramp up. And now they have calculated in this recent work that more than 500 of these vertebrate species now also are on the brink of extinction today. You know, fewer than a thousand individuals left in these populations for these species. And the declines we've seen over the past um, 50 years across all vertebrate populations are are, are astonishing, but um, terrifying at the same time. Truly terrifying. And a lot of that is to do with the intersection between the the species and the human impacts, isn't it? It's our impacts as people on the planet and what we're doing to the environment that those animals, mammals and reptiles and others live in. So that's really important, isn't it? It's the human interaction element that's so important in understanding why this biodiversity loss is happening. Yeah, um, our footprint on the planet now is just ever increasing. Um, I think 
around three quarters of the land surface are now touched by humans in in one way or another, and almost half of the planet has been converted to agriculture. Um, so when you start to actually see these mind-boggling um, statistics on what we're doing, what we try to do with our research is to start to map where this human footprint and these human impacts are overlapping with the most unique kind of irreplaceable um, diversity that we have of vertebrate life on Earth. So that's all amphibians, birds, mammals, reptiles. We wanted to know where they are most unique, where they are restricted to areas of high human impact. And those unique ones are, as I said, they're at the ends of those branches of the trees and they may be very far apart. Why are they so special? Is it because there aren't any animals coming up behind them that we could almost replicate that type of species from it? Is it because they contain specifically unique genes or makeups or structures? I mean, what is it that makes them so terribly special? Everything and more that you've just... So these these species, are they, they are very genetically unique. Uh, many of them don't share a living relative for more than 100 million, 200 million years. Back 200 in, million years? Yeah, so if you look at the Tuatara, um, the, the closest relative to all living lizards and snakes... That diverged from all of the lizards and snakes around 240 million years ago. So, you know, if we were to lose a species like the Tuatara, that takes us back, way back before the dinosaurs were roaming the planet. There's this, you know, small lizard-like creature that split from all of the lizards and snakes. And now this is the single soul remaining representative of an entire lineage, a long, deep branch of the tree of life. Probably we should just add that the Tuatara, despite its amazingness and despite its third eye, thankfully, is not under threat of extinction. And so it's not one of these species that we're worried about, but it is definitely a species that has a special position on the tree of life. They may be species that we haven't heard of, but James, are there other species that we might be more familiar with that are also incredibly under threat as part of the you know, work and mapping and understanding that you've been doing? Well, there might be, but I want to just come in first in a moment uh, and some further things in response to what we were just saying. And One was about biodiversity itself, because biodiversity isn't just about counting species. It more generally means the variety of all life on Earth. And that's what Ricky's been doing within his work. He's been taking this concept of biodiversity and biodiversity conservation beyond just counting species, which is what we most commonly think of, and into the realms where we consider the evolutionary tree as well. And why is the evolutionary tree important in terms of biodiversity? Because the evolutionary process is what generated the biodiversity in the first place. And therefore, when we think about uh, the Chiwetara example Ricky was just mentioning, you've got 200 million years of evolution on the one side, and in the same 200 million years, all lizards and snakes evolved from the same common ancestor. And so we've got an awful lot of mutations and changes happening which are only held to existence by one species at the end of it. And if we lose that, we then lose all of that information, much of which we don't understand. So it's a bit like, well, I think losing a species is a bit like burning the last copy of a book that you haven't properly read yet, because there's so little we know about many of these species. But then losing one of these particularly unique species is like losing a particularly unique and special book 
that you haven't read yet with many new concepts and ideas in rather than something that's derivative. That's a fantastic analogy. Are any of them species that we might know? Are they species that, that would be in sort of common understanding? Ricky, are there things that we might recognise on a day-to-day basis? Uh, yeah, definitely. So some of the most unique um, groups of animals that come out and drive these patterns we see are things like elephants, rhinoceros, very topical at the minute. Um, pangolins also drive a lot of this. So elephants and rhinoceroses are a special case of this biodiversity loss because all of the remaining species of elephants and rhinoceros on the planet are threatened with extinction. So not only are we losing these tips on the tree of life, we are then losing the long branches that connect elephants to everything else. So we're starting to lose the internal structure of the tree of life. Rather than just the loss of individual species, we start to lose entire branches from the tree of life when we lose entire species, genera, families that are um, all um, at risk of extinction. And the work that you've been doing has been supported by something called the EDGE unit, hasn't it, at London Zoo? I mean, what, what, does, what does EDGE do? What's its kind of role? Okay, so the EDGE of Existence programme at um, ZSL, um, EDGE is a acronym for Evolutionarily Distinct and Globally Endangered. And what we do at EDGE is we identify priority species across lots of different taxonomic groups. So we have EDGE lists for mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, sharks, corals, and soon to be um, cycads for the first time. Um, What we do is we prioritize these groups of species based on their evolutionary uniqueness. So how alone they are on the tree of life, that is our measure of their value and their biodiversity value. And then we combine this with their extinction risk. So how close they are to becoming extinct. Um, And from this, we can rank these species as the most unique and threatened species will be at the top. And then, you know, very close species with lots of close relatives that aren't at risk will be at the bottom of these lists. And we are able to then engage in providing conservation action through local conservationists, early career conservationists from developing nations to actually go and try and empower local people and local communities to save their local environments and uh, preserve their natural heritage around them. Yeah, and they're important not just in their own right, they're important because of the interrelationship with other species, aren't they? Because that's the whole point about your point, James, about, you know, biodiversity not being just about one thing. It's that interconnectedness that's so important, isn't it? And that, you know, you lose one and then it has a knock-on effect on on, on other parts of of our ecosystems. Yes, it absolutely does. And that's an entire other angle to this, which we haven't even accounted for in this study. And one of the reasons is that it's very difficult to know about the interactions between uh, species when they have to be observed or they have to be inferred from the species traits or from the fact they occur in the same areas. Uh, And this analysis that we've done really just focuses on the regions that the species appear in how impacted those regions are in terms of their human footprint and also where those species are in the tree of life. And I guess people would say, but, you know, this has been going on for for the whole of mankind. We've always interacted with our environment. We've always had an impact on the environment we live in, on on the biodiversity, on the ecosystems. You know, we're speeding the process up, but there's not much we can do as people because we have to live on the planet. What would be your response to those sorts of comments? There's lots of things we can do. And actually, there is another project which OneZoom has collaborated with, which is exactly about this. It's called One Tree, One Planet. And uh, it is the work of an artist, Nazi Harmastui, who sadly is no longer with us, but she's a celebrated digital artist and a team of scientists at the University of Florida. And the purpose of it is 
through a tree of life experience, people can see what actions they can take to help biodiversity. And those actions are accessible also from the OneZoom website and from One Tree, One Planet itself. And they all come down to reducing your footprint. So some of the things relate to climate change, for instance, and how to reduce your energy use through transportation or through energy consumption. Others of them relate to uh, your food consumption, which affects not only your carbon footprint, but also the amount of land required to produce that. But then there are simpler things like just connecting with nature and learning to appreciate it. We can't work to save something unless people uh, see and appreciate what it is, or planting some native plants in your garden, which might help local pollinators. So there's a range of actions there which individuals can take and they all add up and make a difference. Yeah, and I guess that what you're saying is that we're all interrelated, aren't we? We're all interconnected, both both humans and the species that, that, that share the planet with us. And it, we have a, a moral responsibility mm. to take more and stronger action to ensure that our um, behaviours and don't have a damaging and negative impact. Do you see any sense, I mean, we've all been in lockdown now for weeks, we've been in lockdown globally. Are you getting any sense that the, 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 the pause in the planet, uh, for the planet that's been happening recently, has affected some of these species? Are we getting any sense that populations might be able to recover a little bit? Because I know it's something we've talked about in the pod before, and we've talked about fishing and the fact that over because people haven't been fishing, there's a chance for fish stocks to come back. Now, obviously, they have very short lifespans, and therefore those things are going to reproduce much more quickly, I suspect, than than river turtles i must say the merry river turtle is the coolest <laughs> turtle i have ever seen that you know the picture accompanying this pod is of that punk turtle with green hair it is fab. but basically it has that pause helped at all with some of the species recovery has it helped to, to stop some of the habitat loss or are we just kidding ourselves um, i think we're just kidding ourselves um so data is starting to come out now that this year still is seeing increased um, deforestation across the amazon a lot of protected areas, which are currently being produced to protect certain species um, of rhinoceros, have been delayed due to the lockdown, um, global lockdown. The pandemic has slowed things down. And uh, we started to see kind of upticks in people returning to hunting for food where um, society, like they can no longer afford to eat, um, which obviously is very important for them to survive. But um, the pressure on biodiversity in these tropical areas has, has definitely not disappeared during this. That's That's definitely a a fairy tale. Oh, that's really discouraging, isn't it? And I guess also there's been far less scrutiny, hasn't there? Because I know this has been something we've been talking about in the UK about, you know, some of the the the, the killing of raptors and and of the you know wild birds because there hasn't been the scrutiny because people have been inside during lockdown. Actually, some of the devastation has increased rather than decreased. Yeah, definitely. And you know, and then the planet now is going to need economically to recover, and it's yet to be seen what kind of ecological burden that will now put on the remaining natural habitats and that's that's one of the important things is yes we can talk about you know saving the environment because we have a moral responsibility but the human fate is in, is intrinsically attached to the fate of the natural world without the natural world we stop existing so it's not only part of our moral responsibility to to save the natural um, world it's actually in our best interests too as a species yeah james i completely agree with that uh, but I, I want to just add, as we've been talking about uh, coronavirus, that the coronavirus that we're talking about here is, of course, very big right now. But that is going to come to an end relatively soon in the general scheme of things. But 10 years, 20 years, 
probably 100 years from now, we will still be talking about these issues and they'll be very much centre stage. And also, just as we've seen with coronavirus, there's been a lot of talk about how we take some actions now and it takes a couple of weeks before we see the effect that they have on the numbers of people with the disease and the number of people dying. It's the same with biodiversity too. The actions that we're taking now relating to sustainability, climate change and also habitat loss particularly, we may not see any immediate effects of those. And it may be that those effects take decades to actually take effect and be seen. And that's something as a concept is quite alien to us because we're used to seeing the consequences of our actions very quickly and therefore having a chance to change what we're doing. But here we need to be mindful of the fact that we're taking actions that have much longer term consequences and need to be considered on those timescales. And on that basis, do you have any hope then that we are capable of taking the right actions as a species, as a human race, to prevent further species loss and biodiversity loss? I absolutely do. Uh, I'm not a fan of pointing out all of these problems, but then saying, well, there's no solution, there's nothing we can do. I think that's the bad way to approach it. I think that there's very exciting new technologies coming in to help improve the way that we live in a more sustainable manner. And I think there's hugely growing public interest and understanding in these issues. And I think that that's going to continue. There's everything to fight for, but it's definitely not won yet, the battle we have to face. No. Ricky, um, you're particularly interested in reptiles, aren't you? And, you know, I joked about the cool river turtle, but but what is it about them that fascinates you so much and, and, and why are they so important? Well, I guess I can't really pinpoint what it is. Um, since I was a child, I've just been kind of obsessed with snakes and crocodiles. Uh, but they are they are wildly diverse. You know, you think about, the, you know, there's 10,000, more than 10,000 species of snakes and lizards on the planet. And you have everything from 10 meter long pythons down to, you know, 10 centimeter long thread snakes, lizards with two legs, lizards with four legs, lizards with no legs, lizards that aren't really lizards. Then you have two ataras, which have you know, an eye in the middle of their head, basically. Um, they, they are just so wonderful and diverse. You have crocodiles, which, you know, are most closely related to birds and the dinosaurs. And crocodiles have remained unchanged for millennia. And they persist all around the world. They travel through salt water um, to traverse oceans in, in the Pacific. You know, they are just, to me, absolutely fascinating kind of prehistoric beasts. And they things like the Mary River turtle, um, the gharial, which uh, we work on in Nepal, you can look at this and you can you feel like you can see evolutionary history right in front of you. This this is a very um, abstract concept, the tree of life, but you can look at certain species and you go instantly, okay, yeah, that that is prehistoric. You know, there's no two ways about that. That is a very unique and old species. And for me, reptiles embody that more than anything. And I guess. One of the main issues what drives me now with the conservation of reptiles is that we aren't even in the position of knowing enough about reptiles to know how important they actually are. They are so poorly known, um, much less poor, much less well known than birds and mammals and even amphibians in most regards. We are only now, this is the first time we've ever been able to map the tree of life for reptiles. This has been possible for amphibians, birds and mammals for close to a decade. It's the first time we've ever actually been able to put the tree of life of reptiles onto a map of the planet um, and that's thanks to a lot of work by a lot of people over the last 10 or 20 years um, a lot of them have been the collaborators on this project um, and this is we are only now starting to unpick where where these species are most unique and how important they actually 
probably are to the environment. I guess the work of the zoo is really important there, isn't it? Because people sometimes are a bit ambivalent about zoos and, and, and you know, they, they went in and out of favour. But the work that ZSL London Zoo do around research and, you know, the breeding programme and also just the understanding, the zoological, um, you know, knowledge that's, that's encapsulated by that place is absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, and it, as well as being, you know, if you haven't been to the zoo recently, guys, as soon as the zoo opens, go back because it is an amazing place. But there is so much that they're doing that I don't think people understand. And, and know about yeah and when we're talking about history you know ZSL is one of those institutions which is absolutely steeped in history going back all the way to Darwin in the 19th century through with David Attenborough being a big part of the zoo's history and now this research we have on the forefront um yeah we, we have been kind of world leaders in how we understand the natural world for almost 200 years and nowadays that that focuses on a lot of things including you know emerging zoonotic diseases which we face right now yeah but, um, coronavirus you know we have world leaders looking at Ebola and even coronavirus now so our research is not just kind of abstract and detached from kind of human benefits we also researching you know how Ebola can jump from species into humans and these kind of things and then we have everything from our breeding programs where we're reintroducing species into the wild and maintaining uh, populations of fish that are extinct in the wild and found nowhere else and then in our conservation programs at Edge alone we have over 100 um, conservation projects around the world working to save these unique species, many of which have never had any conservation attention at all. And working with the local populations and indigenous populations in those communities as well. So making sure that, that you know, with, with, isn't somebody parachuted in to do something. It's actually ground up, isn't it? Yeah. So we, are, we definitely believe as an institution that we are looking for a world where not just wildlife, but humans thrive too. And we can coexist and... Um, humans can benefit and grow in um, sustainable fashion and have sustainable livelihoods in these areas currently, you know, where they don't really have much social justice um, and economic justice, especially. So yeah, the two are to me intrinsically linked that you can't have the conservation of a species without also helping the sustainable growth of people in the region too. And I guess the other thing about the zoo is for many of us, we will not, uh, possibly haven't in the past, and certainly probably won't in the very near future, be taking these very adventurous overseas holidays we won't be taking these big transatlantic trips so the only chance we might have to get close to a slightly more uh, rare or exotic species whether it's a, a lizard or something a bit bigger would be through a zoo experience so I think they have an important part in our kind of cultural social and environmental um, lives and history as well don't they but the zoo is in in a pretty parlous state at the moment financially isn't it because there's no government funding I understand for the for, for ZSL so there is a big fundraising campaign going on isn't there at the moment yes yeah, so all of our work done around the world for conservation and science and the zoos themselves comes from um, visitors to the zoo and donations and uh, from you know, um, the public, basically. So uh, with the zoos being closed, obviously that puts us in a really precarious position. Our research around the world, you know, the deforestation of the Amazon and, you know, hunting of animals and poaching of animals doesn't stop because of coronavirus but our work might have to stop and you know we have these projects which are doing wonderful things around the world not just for animals but for humans and to see that kind of come to an end would be a real tragedy um, so hopefully uh, something can happen the zoos can open and you know people can donate on the zoo on zsl's website if they ever want to support the zoos in that way while they're currently closed 
Yeah. And I guess you could say also that had we known more about those zoonotic diseases, we might have actually been in a better position to either prevent or certainly tackle something like, like COVID-19 sooner because it was that lack of understanding, wasn't it? So so it's in our own interest not just to preserve these species because they're important for the planet. It's in our interest as human beings to understand that relationship and know more about it. You know, what's the agenda for government, James? Is there something that, that our governments both here and worldwide should be doing around biodiversity and halting habitat loss. What more could we be asking of our policymakers and our leaders? Well, I think that uh, we should be encouraging them to, first of all, take the biodiversity crisis seriously, uh, and then to look at preservation of habitats and to look at climate change. I also think that it's important to recognise that many of these things are international issues. Many of these species we've been talking about today exist in other countries, and it requires international collaboration to solve the problems of climate change and also to support other countries which have particularly unique biodiversity under threat in order to take the action required there. And actually, that gives me the opportunity to say something else about the EDGE project, which is the thing I particularly like about it is that it supports people in the countries where these species, quite often endemic species, exist that are high up in this list, very unique and certainly under threat of extinction. And that is really a great way to do conservation work because you achieve so much. It's amazing to see the projects that these aspiring conservation biologists in these countries have done with so little resources in order to make a noticeable difference to species that would otherwise have been forgotten. That's a really interesting point. And I think it's, it, it encapsulates that actually that interconnectedness that we've been talking about, you know, that, that your wonderful one Zoom tree shows us we are all interrelated. And then we go off on these different branches. But that doesn't mean that we don't have that core, if you like, that main trunk. Thank you both so much. I'm going to ask you a really killer question to close with. Do you have a favourite species? James. Oh, how could I choose a favourite species? Well, I was going to uh, mention the pangolins again. Uh, not that they're necessarily my favourites, because how could you choose out of two million species which your favourite is? Uh, but I think they're particularly relevant here because there's only eight species of them, and they're all either endangered or critically endangered. They're in terrible trouble, and they have at least 60 million years of evolution behind them. They're covered in armoured scales, unlike any other mammal, and uh, they're the closest relatives of cats and dogs. So on the one hand, cats, dogs, bears, and all their relatives have evolved, and then in the same time, we've had just eight species of pangolin evolve, and they're all under threat of extinction, and they all need our help. Yeah. And I guess before COVID, no one had ever heard of pangolin. I had, because I happened to know that it's Chris Packham's favourite animal. I've been aware of that weird sort of armoured shape, but I think a lot of people hadn't even heard of them. Um, and why on earth anyone would want to eat anything so incredible and beautiful is totally beyond me. But they are a fab best species to have. While we're on the subject of these extraordinarily distinct animals in terms of their position on the tree of life, I've got to mention the coelacanths. There's two species of coelacanth. They're basically a kind of fish. And... They have 420 million years of evolution behind them, leading to just two species, both of which are threatened with extinction. One of them is critically endangered. And in fact, they were thought to be extinct until they were rediscovered. 
not that long ago. So if there's ever an edge species, it's the coelacanth. And that's where that 50 billion years of loss that I mentioned in the introduction comes in, isn't it? If we wipe out one single species, we lose countless years and understanding of evolution and biology and development. That is exactly right. So if we take the tree of life and we add up the lengths of all the branches on the tree of life that end in only parts that are threatened with extinction, that is where the figure of 50 billion comes from. Ricky, do you have a favourite species? I have to say every edge species, um, but that's far too many species. If yeah, I, that's one, a good political answer, but you're allowed yeah. to have a favourite, you know. Okay, so... Um, you have to I'd, pick one out. I'd have to say the West African slender-snouted crocodile. So it's one, <laughs> Slender-snouted no. crocodile. Oh yeah, you have to see it, it's amazing. Um, so they are very well adapted for capturing fish, so they have a very slender snout. And they are basically surviving now. So some of my colleagues have discovered that they thought it was one species across Central and West Africa, but it's actually just, there is a single species in West Africa and a single species in Central Africa. And the West African species is you know, very unique and it's now very limited to certain pockets of protected areas and areas kind of protected by traditional beliefs. And it's just an amazing animal to see in real life. And they live in the swamps and you see them at the night kind of floating through the swamps. Um, and they are very much on the brink of extinction. So um, I have to pick a crocodile right now. I'd go with the West African slender snouted crocodile. There is a species which um, embodies a similar amount of evolutionary history. Um, more than 100 million years on its own branch, the Chinese crocodile lizard is actually threatened with extinction. And um, it's currently being targeted across China and Vietnam for the pet trade into Europe. So I guess that is something people could also consider um, when they're looking at um, how they can change their individual behaviours is to kind of, you know, understand where animals are coming from, if they keep pets and this kind of things to limit their impact on, on these threatened species. Thank you both. To have a slender snouted crocodile and a pangolin in one programme is, 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 is something else. Thank you, James Rosendale and Ricky Gums, for sharing your thoughts around biodiversity and the amazing work that you're doing. And um, we would call on everybody to support ZSL London Zoo because it needs your help now more than ever. And you can go to their website and donate. You've been listening to Planet Pod. My huge thanks to my producer, Jim Hayward, who is working miracles despite us not being in our wonderful studio. Do keep in touch with us. You can tweet us at Planet Pod or follow us on Instagram. You can visit the website, theplanetpod.com, download previous episodes and subscribe. And if you listen on a podcast app, please take a moment to rate and review the pod because we really appreciate your support and feedback. A huge thank you to my guests. Thank you for listening. Goodbye and stay safe. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.